Welcome to the VBAC Link Podcast. This is Julia and Megan with you today, and we are really thrilled about the guests that we have on today. We have Brittany Sharp McCollum, who is a pelvic dynamics specialist. And we first learned about Brittany when we were at the evidence-based birth conference. Megan attended one of her workshops there and instantly fell in love. And you guys like madly in love. Like, don't tell Megan. (laughs) But she's kind of obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) But we're really excited to have her on today because a lot of cesareans happen because big baby, small pelvis, right? We've all heard it. If we had a quarter, every time we heard that excuse for a cesarean, we would be rich women, I think. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But we're going to talk about that. We we are going to talk about that today with Brittany. Um, Brittany is a childbirth educator. She's a birth doula, pelvic biomechanics educator. Her work with expectant family centers around supporting people and exploring their options, developing their preferences, and navigating the tools and information necessary to make them a reality. In her trainings for birth professionals, she takes a research-based, multidisciplinary approach to exploring pelvic dynamics in relation to labor and facilitating the understanding of movement as a benefit to medicated and unmedicated labors. Guys, the things that she does can help you, whether you have an epidural, whether you're unmedicated, home birth, hospital birth, birth center, anywhere, everywhere you give birth, we are going to have some really, really awesome tips for you by the end of this episode. So get your pen and paper out. This is going to be one you want to take notes on. But before we do that, Megan has a review of the week for us. Yes, I do. And this really is going to be one of those episodes that you likely listen to and then have to go re-listen to it and re-listen to it. And you're going to learn things in every single time you listen. I'm so excited for this review too. It's from it says dr flow dr flow the subject is phenomenal so thank you it says megan and julie are amazing i love the knowledge they share on their podcast and their enthusiasm for helping women have amazing feedbacks so thank you dr flow and you know what what? dr flow flow chiropractic i wonder i bet Oh, that makes sense. Uh-huh. And I may have kind of made him write this review at a chiropractor. <laughs> I asked oh. him to, and he, oh. he said he did it on Google and Apple Podcasts. Anyways. Well, then that's his. There you one. go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, thank you. We love him. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just seriously, this podcast is going to be filled with tons of knowledge. So gear up, buckle in, and get ready to roll. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Do you want a VBAC but don't know where to start? It's easy to feel like we need to figure it all out on our own. That's what we used to do and it was the loneliest, most ineffective thing we have ever done. 
that's why Megan and I created our signature course, How to VBAC, the ultimate preparation course for parents that you can find at the VBAClink.com. It is the most comprehensive VBAC preparation course in the world, perfectly packaged in an online self-paced video course. Together, Megan and I have helped over 800 parents get the birth that they wanted, and we are ready to help you too. Head on over to the VBAClink.com to find out more and sign up today. That's the VBAClink.com. See you there. All right. I absolutely love what they said before our intro. Buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> but you know what? It's the best one to take a bumpy ride with because Brittany's going to help us get our pelvises ready for the bumpy ride of childbirth. How was that? Was that a little too There funny? you go. See, and in my head, I'm looking at it as like, we're going to be going like full speed and your mind's yes. going to be like, whoa. <laughs> so, All right. Well, um, Megan, you, you set this up. So I want to kind of just let you drive the car. Is that okay? Sure. I'm going to pop in with, with oogliness wherever is appropriate. <laughs> well, no, I just, I just love Brittany. I loved her the second that... I technically met her in Lexington. You guys should have seen this room. It was this little conference type classroom in like a hotel. And it was smack. Like we were shoulder to shoulder. It would never would have happened during COVID because we were definitely not social distancing. It, Yeah. Like we were packed. Everybody wanted to come and learn what she had to say. And we only got one tiny little hour. And of course, she had this like big line of people to ask her questions after. And so as soon as I left, I mean, I told Julius, I'm like, I need more. I need more. And so yeah, she was um, like, <laughs> like, even now, like when I'm at a birth, I'm like, hold on, remind me, like, is it knees in or knees out? Or is yeah. it asymmetrical movement <laughs> or, or symmetrical <laughs> movement for this stage where the baby's <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just, oh, I learned so much. And um, I was so fortunate, um, even during COVID, to be able to attend one of her workshops live this year in 2020. And she just continues to amaze me. And I'm just, when Julie says I'm obsessed, I really am obsessed with her. I love her. I can't get enough of her. And I'm so excited that she's here with us today. So, first of all, I have this one thing that like I would like to talk about because. This is something that I personally got stuck on myself, even as a doula, right? And as a doula, I was trained this. And so when I learned about this, I was like, what? So if you have ever heard that your baby has to be in an LOA position, then you really want to turn the volume up right now because you're going to learn some stuff. So during my pregnancy with with Webster, I literally, I did not sit on a couch or a chair other than my actual car, literally the entire time. So all the way up to 40 weeks and five days, I did not sit on a chair, a couch, nothing. I sat on the ground. I didn't even sit on a birthing ball. I sat on the ground and was like tipping my pelvis up and like sitting so uncomfortably that like it hurt my stomach and my back. And I'm just, you know, I killed myself. And guess what? My baby was OP. He was posterior. I was doing all the things to get this baby in an LOA because we had to have this baby in an LOA. And he was posterior. And after taking Brittany's course, like I realized, you know, that's how he needed to be. And then we worked through labor and worked with my pelvis and him and got him where he needed to be. So my first topic of discussion that I'd love Brittany to touch on is position of, of the baby and how, yes, it matters, but 
how there's so much that we can work with. Thank you so much. That introduction, oh my God. <laughs> I would love for you to introduce me everywhere I go like that. that oh, I would totally I would totally come with you. If I could be a fly <laughs> on the wall in your life, then that would be a dream come through. Oh my goodness. That was crazy. Like I want you in my back pocket to like boost my self-esteem every day. <laughs> We're there. We're there. I, tell us. Tell I us. am so honored that you felt like that you feel this way after, you know, we've only met like in person twice. And I'm just incredibly honored that that you feel that way and that I've had such an impact on your excitement about positioning in the pelvis. Um, but not even yeah. just me. You have had an impact on my clients. Oh, well, that's that I think is where the, the 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 real importance of this information comes into play is that once you have these seeds planted, then we go out and we share this information and we use it and we share it with providers and we share it with nurses and we share it with clients. And then it spreads and it starts to kind of infiltrate the, the entire childbearing reproductive care system and hopefully make some serious change. And that's why, like you were talking about the workshops that I teach, that's why I love them so much, because even if we have a workshop with 20 or 30 people in it, there's the potential to impact hundreds of births. And Definitely. I think that that's, yeah, that's really amazing. Oh my gosh. And that evidence-based birth conference was incredible. That conference was phenomenal. And that room, when you said like, we wouldn't have been able to do that in COVID. Absolutely. We would not have been able to pack in there if it was COVID times. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that we were able to get that workshop in um, before COVID. Um, Me too. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So you had mentioned LOA. So let me... Um, talk a little bit about that. Maybe I should give a little bit of a kind of a background on what I do maybe first. When you introduce me, I'm a pelvic biomechanics educator, childbirth educator, birth doula. And when I'm talking about pelvic biomechanics, what I'm really referring to are the laws that govern the push and pull that occurs within the body to change the bones of the pelvis, change the space between the bones of the pelvis, particularly during labor and birth. So that's what biomechanics are, these um, biological laws that kind of govern the effects of movement in the body. And then I take these ideas and then incorporate them into understanding how we can change space for the baby in the pelvis and encourage a baby to continue to descend and rotate. The goal in everything that I do is, of course, to, to decrease unnecessary intervention, because when we have unnecessary intervention, we tend to have a whole lot more risk than benefit. And as anyone knows who does childbirth education and, and works with pregnant people, it's a constant weighing out of benefit and risk with every choice that's made. But anyway, that's really important is, to me, decreasing unnecessary intervention. But another really important part of what I do is restoring the autonomy of the birth process back to the person giving birth. And it doesn't matter how that person is giving birth. It doesn't matter if it's yes, a medicated absolutely. birth. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think... Well, that could be a whole other, you know, hour-long podcast. But um, it doesn't matter if somebody's birthing with an epidural or without an epidural. They should come out of their experience feeling like they did something amazing. It doesn't matter if somebody has a cesarean or a vaginal birth. They should come out of it feeling like they did something awesome rather than feeling like something happened to them. Yeah, so it makes no difference how someone is giving birth. They should feel like they've done something awesome in that experience. And then I feel like that then translates into how they parent and how confident they feel moving forward through their entire parenting journey. And that impacts the relationships that they have within their family dynamic. And 
I mean, we carry our births with us for the rest of our lives. So if we can help people to feel more empowered in their experience, that's a really amazing thing. So that's my goal. And a lot of what I do focuses on really two things, the importance of movement in all births and the importance of inform the op the opportunity for informed consent and refusal. So to actually answer <laughs> your question that or kind of provide some insight, I guess, into your question about positioning of the baby, I can offer a little bit of background first. So I, I definitely talk with my clients in pregnancy about the importance of aligning their bodies. So Megan, you had mentioned like you didn't sit on a couch <laughs> your entire pregnancy. And for a lot of people, you know, I think particularly people who maybe have had a past certain experience that they want to have happen differently the next time, they'll do extreme things like not sit on a couch at all. What I love to do is allow or kind of, I guess, not allow, offer people modifications for their everyday things that can help them to be better aligned when they are preparing for labor rather than kind of giving someone like a to-do or not to-do list. I try really hard to encourage people to be aware of how they're holding their body and how they're balancing the weight of their body and whether they are getting up to move frequently or getting stuck in positions for a long period of time. And the things that I talk about with my clients prenatally to encourage alignment are not geared towards getting a baby positioned a specific way, <laughs> which kind of ties into what you were saying about like, oh no, what if my baby's not LOA? What the most current anthropological research tells us is that most people have variations of four basic pelvic shapes. And what's so interesting is that according to the research that we have, which we could question this research to an extent because how good could this research be? But um, according to the research that we have, about two of the four pelvic shapes, again, we're thinking about variations of pelvic shape, but two of the four pelvic shapes actually favor a baby moving into the pelvis in a right side-lying or slightly posterior position, meaning that for those people that have pelvic shapes similar to the, the pelvises that favor those positions, their babies need to be positioned that way in order for them to start their journey descending and rotating through the pelvis. So when we encourage babies to be positioned one specific way, we discount a significant number of people's pelvises that will not favor a baby being positioned a specific yes. When I see yeah. that so many times where my clients, or maybe they're even looking transverse, but that's just the way that the baby has to enter their specific pelvis shape. And I know that like, maybe we can, we'll touch on this a little bit sooner, but the more like we interbreed, <laughs> I don't even know if that makes sense, the more we like interbreed with each other, the less distinct the pelvis shapes are becoming. And so there's not necessarily four distinct pelvic types anymore, but there's many variations of those. Yeah. And so that's why, like, I tend after Megan like came back and told me like all the things she learned from your um, <laughs> workshop. I've been focusing more on like helping my clients create like space in their pelvis, loosening up those uh, pelvic ligaments, their connective tissues, the what is it called, tubral sacral ligament, or is it sacral tubral? I don't remember. One of that's something like that. Yeah. Something, and just create creating looseness and, and freedom of movement and flexibility rather than focusing on a specific position for baby to be in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So I'm a non-clinical provider. I'm a doula and a childbirth educator. So I don't do like soft tissue releases or things like that. That's not, that's not my wheelhouse. Everything that I do in classes and workshops is all non-clinical 
information, education-based stuff that then people can continue to share. So all of that stuff, that soft tissue release, like that is amazing stuff also, like that is complementary to everything that I do. And that is definitely something that people should be exploring and seeking out resources for in pregnancy. A lot of the things that I like to suggest are just kind of simple bodily movements or changes in ways that they do everyday things, um, which I kind of think of more as like alignment. But I think it's a complement to like soft tissue release work and chiropractic care and and all of that. Like every, you know, we want to utilize as many resources available to us as possible so that we can best prepare our bodies to to give birth in a way that's that's healthy and maybe efficient (laughs) and really positive, too. So, yeah, I mean, all that stuff is really important. And it's so much less about getting a baby positioned a specific way because no one knows what pelvic shape they have unless they've had. Yeah, unless they've had like, you know, x-ray pelvimetry, which most people haven't. And even if they have had x-ray pelvimetry, it's unlikely that they would have then looked at anthropological research to compare that to variations in pelvic shape. like, so, and I've actually, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had experience with clients who've had x-ray pelvimetry in the past and still they don't know what variation of pelvic shape they have. So my goal is to really take information that is more tangible and usable rather than saying like, theoretically, I think your pelvis might be like this. So your baby should be like this. No way. I don't know what pelvic shape someone has. They don't know what pelvic shape they have. Their provider does not know what pelvic shape they have. So rather than focusing on getting a baby specifically positioned a certain way, I like to give people the tools to allow their body, like you said, to create space as much as possible so that then their baby can find the most ideal position to move through the pelvis that the baby's working with. Exactly. See, like that is so powerful to me anyway. (laughs) To me, I was like, what? Wait, whoa. Okay. I love it. Yeah. And one thing that's so interesting is that Posterior babies get a really bad rap. And um, I think there's a, in the longer workshops that I teach, we go into a lot of the history of this with uh, obstetrical bias and things like that. But I think it's really important to recognize that as soon as a provider, and this has to do with really honestly, in my opinion, like inadequate training when it comes to understanding bodily mechanics. And I'm not saying that for all providers, many providers seek out this information on their own. But conventional training does not include like an anthropological look at pelvic shape um, or anything. But anyway, I'm digressing. My point was that we've all, especially as birth professionals, probably been in this situation or maybe someone, you know, as a birthing person has been where a provider comes in and maybe does an internal exam or does a quick palpation of the belly and they say, oh, this baby's posterior. Well, we'll give it a little more time and see if we can get the baby to turn. And what happens then? The energy in the room just deflates. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I think of that as like such loaded words. Like, yeah, sure, the provider is saying we give it more time. But really what the provider is saying is that I already don't think you can have a vaginal birth. Yeah, yeah. and something is wrong. Like They're saying, oh, no. your baby's no. posterior. And yeah. why does that do for hormone levels? Oh, right? Exactly. They hormone it. levels rise. Mm-hmm. oxytocin levels crash and then what happens the need for interventions like pitocin to get contractions stronger and all of those things oh my gosh yes yep. yep and then also that seed is planted in support people that this is not likely to wind up in a vaginal birth and then how does that affect the way that support people provide support because then they try and fix it right what did you say that one more time i didn't hear you Sorry, then we try and fix it. So we get our rebozos out and we start doing 
all these different types of movements that we learn in our doula trainings and everything like that. And then moms, our moms are like, oh my gosh, yes, I got to do all of this work to get my baby in the better position. And doulas are like, or providers or support people are like, okay, well, something needs to be fixed. Something needs to be fixed when it might not necessarily be that something needs to be fixed. It might just be the way that that baby has to move through the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, and the focus shifts from being physical and emotional support for the laboring process. And just like you said, focuses on now we have to fix something. Something is wrong. And then for, for other support people, like a partner or a family member that's there, now that seed is planted that this is probably or possibly going to end up in a cesarean. And mm-hmm. it's now making that support person, quote unquote, okay with that idea, which then means they may be less likely to advocate for things like more time. So right. when, we, when we have a provider that does not fully understand how babies rotate and descend, why some babies are posterior and how that is totally okay. And when we have the tools to work with that, then it's awesome. Um, when we have a provider that, that doesn't have that knowledge, we potentially impact not only the, the outcome vaginal or cesarean, but we also potentially impact how someone feels about their birth. We've taken that power away from that laboring person. And that is really, you know, I feel like that's really detrimental. I think what we really need to do is continue to restore that power to the laboring person. So a big part of of what I really emphasize is helping people understand not, you know, how a baby should or should not be positioned, but instead to understand how they can move their body in a way that works with where their baby is in the pelvis to create space for the baby and then trust in that process that the contractions and the pressure on the pelvic floor and the movements of the baby are going to work together to help encourage efficient labor progress. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot yes. of information. Yeah. Yes, but powerful, powerful information. Powerful. So, and I think good. if we can change the way we think about birth and like think about baby positioning, it'll go. I think the biggest, gosh, the biggest disruptor of birth is the the mindset of the birthing person. Yes, and if we can absolutely. just like say, okay, it's it's okay. Let's see how the next couple of hours go because ba- your baby, this might just be the way that your baby needs to come out. Like if we can set that tone instead of like, okay, let's start doing sifting. I don't shake the apples. It's really fun. They'll get you laughing. We can do asymmetrical movements, although I don't know if that's good. For, I still can't remember which way asymmetrical movements are good for. You know, I mean, like, the, if we can step away from the, like, fixing thing and be like, all right, let's, that's okay. It looks like your baby might need this, this, and that. And if we can change the conversation about that, then it will do so much good for the, for, for just balancing out the hormones that are part of birth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I tell people all the time that the same positions, me personally, like as a doula, I'm going to the same positions that I'm going to suggest to work through a potential positioning issue are the things that I'm going to suggest to prevent it in the first place. Um, I don't have like these, these magic tools to pull out in certain situations. My goal is to help us recognize the wide variation of normal in terms of how babies descend and rotate and to have a toolbox full of ideas for encouraging that continued descent and rotation and progress. So it's, yeah, it's not so much like let's, you know, let's have things just keep moving along. Everything's fine. Oh my God, everything's not fine. Now we have to jump in. It's more like let's incorporate movement throughout the entire laboring process so that we can continue to work with descent and rotation. Um, And one of the things too that I think is really important, a lot of times I'm thinking of a few clients I've had 
where they're really into the idea of movement, but they're also like, I'm going to be really tired. <laughs> and so I try to emphasize that when I'm talking about movement, I'm not necessarily referring to, you know, walking up and down the stairs sideways 20 times and then doing a whole bunch of lunges and then doing like curb walking. I'm not not referring to all of those things, although sometimes I am. But subtle movements can be really impactful as well. So even something as simple as shifting how far apart the legs are from one another or standing in a staggered leg position instead of with your feet evenly kind of in line with each other or something as simple, you know, if somebody is, is reclined, like sitting in a semi-reclined position with the soles of the feet together and then sitting in a semi-reclined position with the leg draped over the peanut ball. Like we can take really simple, subtle little movements and make really big opportunities for descent and rotation. So although I do love big dramatic movements sometimes, I also recognize that labor is exhausting. And my goal is not to make people more tired in labor, but instead for them to realize that simple, tiny movements throughout the whole process are what helps to keep things going. Definitely. So just last week, I was at a birth and um, second time mom um, starting in like a really good position, you know, three, three centimeters, favorable cervix, whatever. She's going in for an induction. And the baby was really, really, really high. And she was making progress, but the baby just wasn't coming down, wasn't coming down. And so we started doing just these ever so slight movements, every five contractions. Mm-hmm. And, um, seriously, it was like dramatic. It was dramatic. And the last, the last <laughs> two positions, the nurses, in fact, they should, they, they like pulled out their phones and pulled up your, your Instagram. Cause I was like, oh you have to yeah, because they were like, where did you learn that? And I was like, oh my gosh, I just have to tell you, <laughs> but like, I couldn't even like get into it as deep as I wanted to. Cause I needed to respect the space of the room, you know, cause she's in labor. She's like 10 centimeters. But anyway, like she was kind of hanging out at nine centimeters and you know, for a second time birth, like you don't really expect to hang out at nine centimeters, but sometimes it happens. And this baby just, just wasn't, quite low enough and engaged. And anyway, so we ended up doing just ever so slightly and we did knees together and because the baby was kind of getting lower. So we were kind of doing both like alternating. Right. Mm -hmm, And then the last one, I was like, if you could even just for three, even for three, I said, I just want you to lift your foot up and we're just going to like do this little lunge thing. And she was like, okay. (laughs) So we like did that. And it's like, okay, now I, now I want you to put your knees back together. And so she did that. And, and like, it was two contractions. She was like, Oh yeah, he's coming. He's coming. And I was like, Oh my boom. gosh. Yeah. And the, like the, the, the nurses were like watching. Well, they're watching this happen and they're like, you could see them. And there's one nurse in training. She's like, I need to learn all of that. I'm like, yes, you do. And the one nurse is like, so is this just all spinning babies? And that's when I was like, no, no, you need to give me, give me your phone. This is, this is it. Yeah. And you know that that's and exactly how it went down because I can see it's Megan legitimately that. how it went exactly. down. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, then they were like, well, we can't let you touch your phone because of COVID. I'm like, okay, here it is. I pulled up my phone and I set it aside on the bed as I continued to support. I said, go like her right now. Oh my God. <laughs> so, but like, seriously, you guys, it was a, it was dramatic and and yeah, it took a minute, like, you know, cause seriously, it was like every five contractions, we were just kind of changing it up and ever so yep. slightly. And then she was like, boom, he's coming. And sure enough, he did. And she pushed this cute little baby out so well in such control. And I like, even the doctor was like, whoa, like this control is incredible. And I think it was just because this baby was set up to come out in the, you know, the perfect position for that baby. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like you did a lot of restoring that power back to the person that was laboring, which gives her that confidence to be like, yeah, I can totally birth this baby. (laughs) Yeah. And she was questioning. She was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. She got an epidural at eight centimeters last time. And I was like, no, you're doing this and you can do this. And it's amazing. (laughs) And you're going to do great. And she just, you know, kept doing that. And I said, okay, we're just going to take it one at a time. I don't want you to think about the next one after this. And yeah. anyway, it was just, it was beautiful. And I loved it. And I was like, yeah, that's Brittany for you. She's, she's with me. So, awesome. but, yes. No, I just, I just love you. So I love that you're saying like, it doesn't have to be dramatic. It's hard. Labor, mm-hmm. labor can be exhausting and like mm-hmm. standing up or moving your whole body over to the other side can just seem daunting. And so sometimes people are like, nah, I'd rather just stay here. Yeah, yeah. Well, Absolutely. Isn't bad, right? Like, it's not right. bad. Right. I mean, it can be something like, you know, if somebody is, let's say somebody's in a sideline position, they could be lying with the peanut ball between their knees and then they're, you know, five contractions in that position. And then we take the peanut ball out and they straighten out their top leg. That's a position change that makes space in the pelvis. It changes space. And it's not always about creating the space where the baby needs it, although, the majority of the time, that is what I'm kind of thinking about. But it's also just about changing the space in general. Movement is more important than any specific position. So again, mm-hmm. like when I'm telling people like, you know, if, if there's something to kind of allow to like guide your labor, movement is so important. It doesn't have to be crazy movement. It doesn't have to be remembering all the specific positions to do at different points where the depending on where the baby is. It can just be as simple as remembering to move. And it doesn't yes. have to be only in unmedicated births. And that is such a, a myth that's out there that, you know, once someone gets an epidural, they are limited to lying on their back or lying on their side. There are a million things that you can do in the bed. <laughs> Pretty much any position you can do standing or on the floor, you could modify in some way to do on the bed. Really? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, yeah, it's really important to recognize that movement is an optimal part of, of all births. And the reason that I say that is because movement helps to encourage progress in labor. This is, you know, all research-based. Movement helps to encourage progress in labor. Movement helps with comfort in labor. So that's probably, you know, mainly for people that are birthing unmedicated, but comfort in labor, progress in labor. And then also it helps with oxygenation of the baby. It helps to, you know, keep everybody healthy and happy. And, um, and that's a really important part of it too. And that's why movement is something that, you know, I really feel like clinical providers can, can maybe should jump on board with, because not only is it about progress in labor and comfort, but it's also about optimizing outcomes for the laboring person and the baby. And, you know, I think that's a really important goal for clinical providers is to make sure the process is safe. And so when we encourage movement, we give the baby more opportunity to make subtle shifts and changes, which allows the umbilical cord to move around more freely and helps to oxygenate the baby. I also love to say this too, because I think this is an often overlooked part of of the importance of movement, but prenatal education about movement in labor can help support people to be more invested in the process. It gives Mm -hmm. them something to do as support people. It gives them something that they can offer and suggest throughout the process. And it helps support people to feel more useful in labor, which is important for them feeling positive about the birth experience. And when they're more invested and they feel more positive, then it decreases anxiety and allows for that great hormonal release in labor for the laboring person too. So it's, it, you know, it's about, it's about everyone in the laboring room. Movement is just such, such an important part. 
It really is. And when you talk about prenatally too, like, like I feel like just the, the familiarity is that familiarity. Mm-hmm. Um, if they've been in that position before mm-hmm. and before labor has begun, they're more comfortable in trying that position in labor. Mm-hmm. But I feel and like it might be something that they go to by default too. And it mm-hmm. could be actually go to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like when, when you teach that birth workers out there, if you teach this in your prenatal courses and, or um, meetings and things like that, like you don't, I don't know if you realize that there's so much behind, like so much, uh, I keep saying power, but like power behind that, because um, mm-hmm. it's going to help that couple or it's going to help that birthing couple to be okay and comfortable and trying new things because when you it's we okay i'm going into the the knees all the way back spread open wide in your armpits thing right like we have always seen in all the movies like literally where are your knees and when you see someone pushing in a you know friends or a movie or i'm thinking like rachel like in friends like you know your feet are up in the sky your knees are in your armpits like your stomach is like your head's trying to touch your belly button like seriously this is the position right and so when we're like hey so i actually need you to close your knees they're like what (laughs) you want me to do what you know and then their provider's like no 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 we don't want to do that like why would you do that but there's so much to it. And so if you can educate them before and show them and and teach them, like do the dot trick, you know, from mm-hmm. lovely Gina, who we just love from uh, Mama Stay Fit, like yeah, do yeah. the dot trick and show them in their prenatals, like look at what your pelvis is doing. And then they're like, oh, okay. So when you're like, yeah, I want you to put your your knees together and your feet out and they're not thinking we're like smoking something, you know? <laughs> Like, wait, do you want me to keep my baby in or get my baby out? And you're like, actually, we want you to get your baby out. And we're going to help you do that by putting your knees together, you know? So can we talk a little bit about that too? Maybe segue a little bit into closing pushing. pushing. Yeah. Favorite topics. Um, I actually did a webinar for ICEA for their um, virtual conference, all on closed knee pushing. It was like straight up half hour just on closed knee pushing. It was so awesome. Yeah. So closed knee pushing is when we push with the knees closed. (laughs) And it's, you know, honestly, it's less about the knees being closed, but more about the internal rotation of the thighs that happens when our knees are closer than our hips. And so this internal thigh rotation actually pulls out on the hips, which opens up space side to side at the bottom of the pelvis or the pelvic outlet, which is where the baby's coming out. And the way that I love to share this with, especially with pregnant people, is to actually think about late pregnancy. So when you're 36, 38, 42 weeks pregnant, you're sitting on your birth ball, or maybe you're sitting on your couch or a chair, and you're sitting with your knees really far apart, right? Because that's what feels better. Our bodies are telling us in late pregnancy, it feels better to sit with the knees far apart. Internally, what's happening when we sit with our knees far apart is external thigh rotation, which opens the top of the pelvis, the inlet of the pelvis, which is what the baby is settling into in the last few weeks or sometimes the last few days of pregnancy. And so when we sit in late pregnancy with our knees really wide, not only does it feel better, but also inside it's giving the baby space at the top of the pelvis to settle in. Now, if that's working at the end of pregnancy to help a baby settle into the top of the pelvis, why would we do the same position when the baby's at the bottom of the pelvis? 
right. sense to do the same thing when we're pushing a baby out versus when we're in, in late pregnancy, encouraging a baby to descend into the pelvis. So in late pregnancy, our bodies instinctually get into this wide-legged position. But also what I have found, especially when we've been in situations with really supportive providers, is that instinctually, when people are pushing their babies out, they do bring their knees together or they get into an asymmetrical position. People do not typically, and this is my experience, people do not typically get into really wide-legged positions when they're pushing their babies out. They bring their knees together. Think about going to the bathroom. The next time you go to the bathroom, you're sitting on the toilet, think about how you're positioning yourself. Probably knees together, maybe a little bit of asymmetry there. And you're just trying to allow that space for your bowel movement to come out. Same thing. It is happening. might be the easiest poop you ever took. Just it saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Who's gonna play around with knee positioning next time she's sitting on the toilet? I don't know you. about you. <laughs> I'm telling I totally you. Am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's so important to connect this stuff to to everyday life and to what our bodies are instinctually doing, because when we do that, it restores that confidence. And then when we feel more confident, then even though every single image we've ever seen of birth in the movies has the knees far apart, even though a provider is like, oh, no, you got to pull those knees far apart. What we start to realize is from a biomechanical standpoint pulling the knees apart actually doesn't make sense. So we need to tie this stuff into everyday life, into end of pregnancy, so that we start to see, oh, actually, our bodies know exactly what to do in labor, and we just have to be willing to tap into that and work with that. So yeah, closed knee pushing is pretty awesome. And it's something that you can do no matter what position you're in, whether you're in a standing position or a sideline position, you can even do it in a reclined position, um, all fours. And it's really instinctual. And, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier about how movement is more important than any specific position, I don't think that we should be in one closed knee pushing position for three hours, (laughs) then it loses its its benefits. But when we incorporate that into the different positions that we adopt to during the pushing part of labor, when we recognize that bringing the knees closer together, internally rotating the thighs creates that space at the outlet. Then we can pull that into, um, you know, our, again, our toolbox of positions for, for pushing. Yeah. So closed knee pushing is like all the rage right now. It, it <laughs> really is. And I move in. <laughs> I really have witnessed it for a VBAC, a recent VBAC mm-hmm. um, client of mine. She was pushing great. She was totally pushing great. And baby was making like good progress Mm. and then you know how they like it's natural for them to come back in a little bit and come back out but like he kind of stopped coming out further he would come Mm. out go back in come out but never like go that one step further and so the midwife i like i love this midwife so much and i I felt very very comfortable and saying close your knees Mm. close your knees and that baby next push boom like way further and next push was out and it's so it's just so cool to see and I think you know that was easy for me as a provider with someone that I had a good relationship with. I work with this mm-hmm. midwife often and I could be like close your knees like mm-hmm. <laughs> right um, <laughs> but like in a hospital setting with many providers and nurses who are unfamiliar or even birth centers and you know just in general like when, when we're with providers who are unfamiliar with this technique and the the reason behind it, what would you say is a way, because I would love for us, like obviously what you're doing, you're getting out there, you're in the community, you're educating, and it's only going to spread. 
but like how can we as people and as birth workers try to facilitate this even more like in an in a position where the doctor's like nope get those knees open wide butt in the yeah. air you know yeah. like what how what i don't know suggestion oh, or advice so would you give to yeah. say like you know because like as birthing people like we have the right to say this isn't working mm -hmm. for me i want to try this yep but many times we have providers say well, now, if you really want me to be able to support your perineum mm. and avoid tearing, then you need to be on this back or you oh. need to be in this position so I can get to your perineum. And it's like, well, but the thing is, is guess what? If I close my knees and open my legs, like I'm pretty sure you could still get to my perineum if you really <laughs> need to. And I don't think you need to be up in my perineum, but like... <laughs> I'm just saying here, but like, what would you suggest as provider? Wait, wait, as wait, birth workers? I think we need to make a shirt that says, don't be all up in my perineum. <laughs> <laughs> For real. I love that. I would wear, I would wear that shirt. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that oh, there's so many things that I want to touch on with what you said there. First, I'll, I'll start with what you last said, and then I'll go back to the beginning. Um, okay. So in terms of preserving the perineum, which I think is probably a goal for most people that are birthing vaginally, what, what, what we actually know about perineal tearing and increasing, decreasing the likelihood of tearing is that when the thighs are internally rotated, it actually can decrease the likelihood of tearing because the skin, the perineal area is not stretched side to side. Instead, it's given the opportunity to stretch more front to back. And although many babies do move into the pelvis posteriorly, most babies do wind up eventually rotating around to come out facing backwards. So the crown of their head is kind of, um, I guess we'd say like right underneath the pubic bone there and they're facing backwards, which means the bigger area of their head is front to back, which means the perineum needs to be able to have more give front to back than it does. It needs to have more give front to back rather than being stretched side to side. So when we pull the knees closer together, we actually allow the skin to be stretched less side to side, which gives it that opportunity to stretch more front to back. Up and down. Yeah. From, yeah. So clo like closing the knees or internally rotating the thighs helps to decrease the likelihood of tearing as well, which is huge for people planning a vaginal birth. And then it going really back, to, it really is. Um, going back to what you said about providers that are maybe not so familiar with the idea or the concept of bringing the knees together for pushing, I think it really comes back to prenatal education. And it's not just about educating about the biomechanics, but like you said, it's about educating people about their rights. And it's about educating if they have a partner or a support person there with them that's that's not their doula. It's also important to educate that person because that person is going to become a really big part of the advocacy in the laboring room. So when people realize they have the right to birth in whatever position that they choose, and when they have the information to understand how to create more space within their pelvises. And a supportive provider that will advocate for them, not a provider, partner or doula, because when you're in the pushing stage, you're not always able to speak. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if they have somebody else in their court there as well saying, no, she's comfortable like this, or no, she's not going to get into that position, that can really help. And it, it also provides kind of a buffer for that laboring person to stay in the zone, which is right where they need to be when they're pushing the baby out. So I think prenatal education is a really, really important part of that. And also, I really, this might sound really silly, but practice the conversations surrounding 
informed consent and refusal and advocacy for your rights. <laughs> like literally have like practice conversations with partners or with friends about what you would do in that moment. What words are you going to use in that moment? As, as a birthing person, what words are you going to use in that moment to let your provider know that you're not going to be on your back with your legs hiked far apart? Or maybe you'll be on your back, but your legs hiked closer together or whatever. But practice those conversations ahead of time because it's much easier when you have the language easily available than it is in the moment to try to come up with that. I think a lot of people in the moment wind up being in a situation mentally when they're pushing their baby out where they have, if they're faced with, with being encouraged to do, to do something that does not feel right to them, they have to choose where they're going to put their energy. Are they going to put their energy mm -hmm. into pushing their baby out or are they going to push their, put their energy into debating with a provider about what they want to do? Oh, and unfortunately, yeah. I think that position puts people in a place where they have to focus on pushing their baby out. So they'll do what their provider suggests. So this is when partner support or friend support, whoever is there in addition to a doula can absolutely step in and be like, actually, she's thought a lot about pushing positions and this is how she'd like to be. If a provider's like, well, she's going to tear, this is how she'd like to be. Um, and let her tear, let her tear. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So I think prenatal education, practicing how you're going to actually word things. And that's a, you know, a partner activity too, not just the person that's giving birth. Um, and really being willing to to stand up and speak up. But then a huge part of it too, I mean, and this is this is a given, is to find a provider that you can have open conversations with prenatally and you can really, you know, either help them figure out what your priorities are, or, you know, maybe you have a provider already that's open to pushing positions that, you know, are not the stranded beetle position. But finding a provider that truly is on the same page as you and respectful, respectful of your rights as a laboring person is really important. Yes. Yeah. The, the birth that I was telling you about, the, the provider's like, so I was really trying to get in there to help you support. But if this is the approach you want to take, I mean, I guess we'll just sit here and wait. Mm. And like, Whoa. yeah. Oh my and so that made the birthing parent feel like, okay, am I doing this wrong? You know, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I just looked at her and wink and said, you've got this. Keep on going. And mm -hmm. sure enough, like she did. But yeah, it's just oh, it's so hard. And, you know, people, we, we fall in love with these providers, but mm -hmm. we need them to be there for us 110 percent until yeah. the very end, the very yeah. end, meaning like you're done. You've six weeks postpartum plus <laughs> like right. to the very end, you know, and so. Yeah, I think it's as a uh, you know birthing professional, I feel like we need to educate prenatally and help and and just like give questions to these parents so they can find the right provider. I mean, obviously we can't go and pick them, but like if you if we can give questions, you know, don't be scared as a birthing parent to ask questions mm -hmm. and say and and say this is how I want to do it. Right. Do you right. support that? Or, you know, or like, hey, what have you seen in the past? Like, have you ever seen this happen? If they're like, oh, no, that, that would never work. Well, then maybe you've got a provider that was maybe not the right for you if that's what you're wanting to do. Yeah. You know? It reminds me of the time I had this provider come in to the room and we were trying some less traditional methods to get um, labor to progress on its own. And there was flyers up all over the labor and delivery floor. This provider has delivered her 5,000th baby, 5,000 babies, right? All over the floor. You can't walk outside the door into the bathroom without getting slapped in the face with this 
celebratory flyer of this provider delivering a 5,000 baby. And she walks in the room and she's like, I've delivered 5,000 babies. I have never seen this work before. I've never seen this happen. And I'm like, well, Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> that wasn't my birth trauma provider. Um, the first birth, like literal birth obstetric violence I've seen, that was that birth. And she like, and I'm like, well, has anyone ever, have you ever seen anyone try this before? And she's like, this is ridiculous. This is not going to work. And I'm like, but even, but 5,000 babies, huh? Like, that's all I can think. I'm like, okay. Like, I, I just, I feel like it's easy for providers to get like set in their ways and their routine. And ideally we would like providers to be open and understand that parents can have their intuition that they can adjust as needed and they can try different things. But a lot of providers see birth one way and one way only. And whenever anything deviates from that way, it feels uncomfortable for them because I can relate to that. Like I, I have really bad anxiety. Ask Megan, like anytime we try and do something different than we normally do, I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we gotta do it that way because we always end it this way. And Megan's like, well, let's just go with the flow on this one. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, I, you know, and I can see a provider kind of reacting like that too. And so Figuring out how to overcome those things, like you said, prenatally is really, really important, especially with when we have providers that have been doing things their way for a really, really long time. Yeah. And I think that exactly like you said, providers have been doing something and seeing something work the majority of the time for potentially a really long time. And the training that providers are getting is somewhat limited in terms of the different alternatives that are explored. And so it gets, it's really easy to very, very strongly believe in the way that you were trained and the way that you've practiced for many, many years. But I also think there's a lot of opportunity to plant little seeds. As a doula, I love to say things like, actually, I learned this, this new technique. Do you think we could give it a try just for maybe a couple contractions? And in my experience, I do that too. <laughs> a, couple, yeah, a couple contractions, like actually Megan was kind of hinting towards this, the five contraction thing couple contractions is usually all that you you, you need in one position. I, I developed this quote unquote rule um, that I call the, the blossoming bellies 543 rule. And it it's literally like a guideline for movement. Change position every five contractions, choose one of four basic posi- positions and change them up in three different ways. When I say to a provider, I learned this really cool thing. Do you think we could try it just for a couple contractions? Usually they're like, okay, fine, we'll give it a try. And really all I want is a couple of contractions because then I would want someone to get into a different position anyway. So I think, you know, planting that seed of change for a provider and then when they see it work, that's when now they're going to bring that into the next birth that they go to. But if we we don't stand up and if we don't offer and if we don't suggest and ask, then we lose that opportunity to plant a seed. And even if that provider is not on board with it in that birth, Maybe the next time they hear that, they'll be like, oh, this is now the second time I'm hearing this. Maybe we should just give it a try. And I've seen that happen just with doula colleagues of mine. I've seen things happen where I've suggested something at a birth and there's like a hard no <laughs> from the provider. And then I've actually a friend of mine who's a doula. She, she was we were talking about this birth and she had the same provider there. And that provider suggested that they do the thing that I had just suggested a week before that she was like, no, absolutely not. So, I mean, I am not going to take the, you know, take the credit for that, but I do like to think that maybe a little seed was planted. And 
I think there is opportunity for change, especially with providers that are really interested in, again, helping to restore that power back to the laboring person. Um, and when we remind providers, like, you know, how, how beautiful of a thing that can be for someone to come out of their birth just feeling amazing about it, we can help providers to become excited about what they're doing rather than just feel like they're tired and they're exhausted in their own call, which is all true, but they're also like really, you know, lucky to be part of such an amazing experience like birth. Yeah. Absolutely. I love it. Oh, you give me chills. You make me so happy in my life. Oh you my make God. me happy. You're like, just, I, I have a lot of questions, but I'm just going to ask one since we're kind of running short on time. <laughs> so going back to clothes, knee pushing, is it closed knees, ankles out, or does it matter where the ankles are? Um, I mean, in order for the thighs to internally rotate, generally the ankles have to come out. So the knees come closer than the hips and the ankles come wider than the hips. But there's different degrees of variation. And I would right. encourage everybody to experiment with this on themselves. I mean, you could just sit in a chair, bring your knees together and kind of get a sense as to where your ankles are. And then bring your ankles farther apart and you'll get a sense of how even more deeply internally rotated the thighs are. But you could also have your, your feet hip distance apart, your ankles hip distance apart, and bring your knees together and we get internal rotation. So the knees yeah. come in closer than the hips and closer than the ankles. And that's what causes that internal thigh rotation. And that's what pulls on the hips and allows for more space side to side at the outlet of the pelvis. Yeah, that's what I was figuring. I just wanted to double check because, and well, now that I'm I'm sitting here on my chair, like, looking <laughs> <laughs> here, like, creaky chair in the background. That's why, because I, if you feel, if you move forward and sit on your sits bones, you know, it's mm -hmm. like hanging on the edge, you can feel that even more. Your sits oh, yeah. bones moving around, like, in your pelvis opening and closing as you move your ankles and knees and Absolutely. Um, like we can't really widen your hips like on purpose, but you can do those things and you can feel the adjustment just by sitting on your sits bones. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's a couple centimeters of space change, but when you're pushing out a baby's head, you want every bit of space that you can get. Yes, when you need it. I had a midwife tell me once at a home birth, I'm like, what station is baby at? Right. Because we know that what we need to do with the pelvis depends on where the baby is. Yeah. In the pelvis. Yeah. And, and I was like, is she, is she, zero or plus one and the midwife's like well it's really only one centimeter difference and i'm like mm -hmm. okay i mean like so we're generally like mid pelvis right and she's mm -hmm. like yeah i would say mid pelvis and i'm like well like centimeters matter oh my gosh we should yeah. make another shirt centimeters matter <laughs> get off out of my <laughs> perineum <Yeah. laughs> but really though like even the smallest amount that's why you that's why Sorry, I'm just kind of like connecting all the dots right now yeah, in my yeah. mind. When you're talking about just like it doesn't matter what kind of movement, just move, just mm -hmm. move. Those that movement creates those little shifts that yeah. help help the baby move because the baby's working with your body. And if you're yeah. as your body and baby work together, those little minute spaces of movement can make the biggest difference on how the baby descends. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And generally, um, you know, we think of it as like pelvic inlet, mid pelvis and pelvic outlet. And providers can't always tell exactly, you know, what centimeter station the baby is at. But I think it's really important also, especially like you were mentioning in a home birth, that like as birth support people, we're able to watch someone laboring, observe someone laboring 
and recognize where they might be. Mm -hmm. like, you, yep. like when you even just said that you said to the midwife, is the baby at a zero or plus one? Like you already knew that baby's at the mid pelvis, probably by what you were seeing. And then mm -hmm. we can use that information from internal exams to like further hone in on what positions we may suggest. But I, I hate to overwhelm people too with like all these specific positions that are great at certain points. And I don't like to set people up to think that they could do anything wrong, quote unquote wrong in labor. So I always like to tell people the first level is just recognizing that movement is really important. The okay. next level would be getting comfortable and familiar with different movements that help at di when the baby's at different stations. But really, again, like even if that feels like way too much to remember, especially as like, you know, a, a partner or a friend or something supporting someone in labor, just remember movement. Because even the process of getting out of one position and into another is just like you said, creating these incremental space changes that give the baby more wiggle room. Absolutely. Well, I think like we don't have to overcomplicate it. Just like you no. said, like, um, because I am, I am the one that would get overwhelmed. And like, like Megan mm -hmm. said earlier, she did not sit down at all during <laughs> her pregnancy, right? And so I, I feel like that in, a, in some sense was a certain type of overwhelm, right? And yeah. so if you just say, hey, just move, and if you're pushing and it's not going well, try putting your knees together. Mm -hmm. That's all you got to remember. Yeah. And I feel like those two things alone can make big shifts in a labor that is not progressing as you normally would like to see it progress. Yep, definitely, definitely. And remembering not to stay in any position for too long. Um, I think that's another oh, yes, big yes. part of it. Yeah, like we, I think too, like just along the lines of like you were saying with getting overwhelmed with things, sometimes we also get so set on specific things, like how great the all fours position is. And the all fours position is great, but not if you're in it for three hours. <laughs> um, exactly. So it's so much about like remembering that we don't want to get hung up on one thing. Like labor requires so many different variations and different suggestions and a lot of like intuitive listening to what the body needs, if that's possible, particularly like, again, like an unmedicated birth. But then if somebody's birthing medicated, we can take those same, I guess we could say like principles or concepts and apply them to medicated birth too. Um, it doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be something that is just for unmedicated labors. Absolutely. And um, I think we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, like with an epidural, like I've actually had a mom squat her baby, like deliver squatting mm -hmm. um, with an epidural. Mm -hmm. And we put a rebozo underneath her her thighs to hold her mm -hmm. up and yeah. give her some support and then get gave a squatting bar. Mm -hmm. And so like, remember if you're birthing with an epidural, like you're really, really are not limited to just side, side, back. Like you're really, yeah. really not. It might take some effort from your support people, but like, it's okay. You can do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. And on the, on the other end of the spectrum too, if somebody's birthing without an epidural, sideline positions can be really awesome for them too, just like they could be for someone with an epidural. You know, I, I wouldn't want people to think like, well, if I'm committed to giving birth without an epidural, I also have to be committed to like being upright and in a million different positions, like upright positions are awesome. I'm a big fan of upright positions, but also sometimes at the end of labor, people need to rest in between pushing contractions. Yes. So we yes. can take some of the things that we do with people who have epidurals and also apply that to people who are birthing without epidurals, but remembering the dynamics piece of it, which is um, how we kind of allow the body to shift and move so that we can create the space where the baby needs it. 
Definitely. So I know we're running out of time. I have a really quick question for yeah. you. Sure. So I was at a birth one time and this parent, birthing parent, kept um, going to her hands and knees all the time. Like mm. her knees were bruised. She would not get off her hands and knees no matter like, <laughs> like whatever we did, like anything. I was like, let's do this. Let's do that. Like would not get off her hands and knees. And, and the midwife's like, I don't know what it is with, and she's a first time mom. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what it is with first time moms. She's like, but I see this pattern. And she's like, I see that everyone always goes to their hands and knees. Mm-hmm. Is this, do you think, because this is instinctually what our bodies are telling us to do and our babies are speaking to us, right? And saying, hey, mom, I need to get you, you need to get in that, on that hands and knees position um, to help me come down. Or do you think this is something because again, it's more like the movies, right? Where you like see people laboring on their hands and knees. And do you feel like hands and knees during the entire course of labor is effective or something that, you know, like even with like slight movement, hip to hip, like, do you feel like Mm -hmm. it should be more, I don't know. What do you think about hands and knees all the time? (laughs) That's a really good question. So the first part of your question was, why do I think people tend to assume that position I think that that position, first of all, like from an emotional standpoint, it, you're, you're focusing like on just what's directly in front of you. So uh-huh. it, it, it gets rid of all that at like stimulation that's happening around you. So I think it can help people stay in the zone. I also think that it tends to take some pressure off the low back, which most people, even if the baby, you know, is not posterior, there's not tight uterosacral ligaments, people still tend to feel some pressure in their back with contractions. So that can decrease that pressure. Also, it may, because it's not a direct upright position, it may decrease the intensity of like pelvic floor sensation too. So mm-hmm. I think it can be a little bit of a maybe protective position, but it's also like a really great position for progress because it still allows for a little bit of gravity and it still opens up space in the pelvis. So I think, although it's, it may be a protective position in terms of like allowing someone to manage sensations more easily. I think it's also a really great progressive position too. But I think you'll know my answer to the second part, which is like, what about people staying in that position the whole time they're in labor? I would say no. Yeah, move. <laughs> but, yeah. Move. But here's the thing. So let's say someone loves that position. Well, if they're getting up to go to the bathroom once every hour, then there's some movement. That's great. And then they can come back into their all fours position. But also if we remember, and, and you hinted at this with the, the swaying of the hips, if we remember that there's a million different positions within that all fours position, that's really important. Like, for example, when I was talking about the five, four, three rule, um, with four, with the four basic positions that I use as my starting points, they're standing, seated, all fours, and reclined. And then the three variations that we suggest for those four basic positions are thigh rotation and how we kind of rock the lower back, whether we do sacral nutation or counter nutation, iliac nutation or counter nutation, basically like pelvic tilts. And then also whether we're creating asymmetry. So if we have this all fours position and we just kind of cycle through different degrees of variation within those three things, the thigh rotation, the pelvic tilt, and the asymmetry, we can still stay in all fours and change up that position every five contractions into a modification of all fours. And then remember to get up once every hour and go to the bathroom. And then if that's the position the person wants to stay in, great. But they're not staying in like a stagnant all fours the entire time. They're still changing it up, staggering their legs, bringing their knees farther apart, bringing them closer together, 
elevating one leg out on a yoga block, elevating one leg out more dramatically on a peanut ball, putting their upper body at a 45 degree angle, then doing a flat tabletop back, rocking the lower back to do some pelvic tilts. We've done all those things for five contractions. It's definitely time to get up and use the bathroom now. And then we can come back into that position and do it all again. Yes. And the the bathroom, like while we were while we were chatting, I was like, oh, like the use the bathroom thing. It just gets me like it's such a perfect thing because one, yeah. like it's good to empty our bladder and we sometimes forget about it. Two, yeah. it changes things up, really gets our pelvis moving and changing. It opens with gravity as we're sitting on the toilet, which I like to sit on the toilet backwards when I'm mm-hmm. in Totally. Yes. Yeah. Um, even though people think that's kind of crazy, but like it's really good. But yes, yeah. don't forget to go to the bathroom. And I love the every hour. Like just try. Yeah, you may not yeah. have been drinking a lot, but you may have had IV fluids or, you know, just mm-hmm. your your body is making urine. So don't forget to pee. <laughs> Um, that would be a good t-shirt too. Your body is making urine. Don't yeah. forget to pee. <laughs> right. Dude, I do shirt. Don't forget to pee. Don't forget to pee. <laughs> empty bladder. Oh, there's so many benefits though. Like, cause an empty bladder helps baby descend properly too. Cause a yep. full bladder, you know, the bladder is underneath the baby's head. And yeah. yes. I mean, like I tell my clients at every time a nurse asks if they can check your cervix, then just ask if you can go pee first mm-hmm. because then it gets you up and moving. It gets you on the toilet, which helps open the pelvis. It empties your bladder and, and it gives you a little more time, right? Just yeah. a little more time, but yeah. still. So like, <laughs> I'm going to make a shirt. Oh my gosh, I've got to make a list. I'm going to have to do <laughs> shop. Do, I, do you have to pee? <laughs> Don't forget to pee. <laughs> and I, I keep reference back, like, referencing back to this awesome birth because like, it was literally like a week ago. But that was something that happened. So like she hadn't peed forever and I had been with her for like four and a half hours at this point and not, she had not peed, you know, that we were like working, we're looking at this nine centimeter thing, right? We're like, we're sitting here at nine centimeters, baby's height. We're working on things. And so I had her pee, but she couldn't, she couldn't pee because the baby was too like kind of blocking things a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and the, the providers are like, she, she doesn't need anything. She hasn't even gotten that many fluids. I'm like, yeah, but she's been drinking and. Anyway, and she's like, I don't really feel like I have to pee. I'm like, that doesn't mean you don't have to. So um, anyway, we talked about straight cath and she's unmedicated. And so that can be sometimes uncomfortable, but you should have seen the amount of pee that came out of this straight rubber red cath. Like, and I do think that that had a lot to do with helping um, as well, because it created space for the baby in there in a different way. Absolutely. that's an option. If you can't pee and you haven't peed for a while and you are unmedicated, because usually if you're medicated, you've got a catheter and it's easy peasy, but it's okay. Like and I asked her, I said, so how was that? And she was like, that was nothing. Like that was nothing. <laughs> and so like, don't be scared of it. Cause the prayer's like, we don't want to put her through that. And she was like, no, I'm glad we did. So know that that's an option. If you feel like you cannot go to the bathroom because your baby is blocking or that too low in that sense, like you can do that. And it, it did, it worked and it helped. So, yeah. so there's something that I just, I feel like it can't go untold about oh. you. Uh, <laughs> it's a really exciting thing. It's really exciting. And guess what? It's the 30th of November as of this day. So by the time this is being released, like soon, um, this is already going to have to happen, but Brittany actually has a 
chapter? Is it a chapter technically that yeah. you have written? Do you want to talk in a book that it's getting released in December and I'm so excited about this. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and maybe tell them where they can find it? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So um, I'm really honored to be part of this this book. It's a uh, multi-author book. So each chapter is written by someone different. The book focuses specifically on VBAC and inspiring stories, confidence building stories, and also tips and techniques and suggestions and insights from birth professionals to help people feel really empowered in moving forward with a uh, VBAC or also feel empowered by their repeat cesarean birth. So um, it's called Baby Guide VBAC. And I do have a chapter in the book. Um, and my chapter is on <laughs> pelvic dynamics <laughs> because it's a really important part of labor progress, which can help to decrease the, the need for intervention. My chapter is kind of all about the importance of movement, but also it's filled with some anecdotal stories that I've um, gotten permission to share from clients whose births I've attended and just some insight into, you know, my perspective on birth and movement in birth and empowering birth experiences. And, you know, I even get into a little bit of informed consent because that's another really important part of what I do. So it's really awesome. It's coming out in mid-December. It's called Baby Got V Back. It will be, the link to purchase it will be available on my website, which is blossomingbelliesbirth.com. And it will be available on Amazon for uh, only $1 for, I think, the first 30 days or so. Um, and it'll be a digital download that you can, you know, put on your Kindle or whatever you use to read stuff or, you know, your phone or whatever. Um, so for a limited time, it'll be available for $1. And then after that, it will be available on the website at regular price and we'll have print editions coming out as well. So um, we're looking at mid-December for that to be released. And so you'll be able to find the link to that on my website. And I'm really excited just to share that platform with expect, uh, not, not expectant parents, although expectant parents can read it, but um, people who've given birth, parents sharing their stories, which I think is really awesome. But also I think what makes this, this book really unique is that it incorporates stories from birth, birth professionals too, um, including clinical providers also. So it's a really interesting mix of empowering stories coming from a lot of different areas. Um, and it's intended for birth professionals to read. It's intended for expectant parents. And I think also even people who, you know, maybe done having children may still find the book to be really, really fun and inspiring. So yeah, Baby Got V Back coming out in mid-December. <laughs> That's so exciting. Yeah. And by the time this episode airs, it will be, let me look at my schedule. February. So it's live now. Go buy it. Thank you. <laughs> and I want you to put a pause on this episode right now, but don't forget to come back and listen. And I want you to go to Instagram <laughs> and go to Blossoming Bellies Birth. Blossoming Bellies Birth. Yep. And yeah. you'll see, you'll see her Instagram. Trust me, you want to go join it. She does like Girl, you do so many things. You do like webinars and trainings and so just so much stuff. That's so awesome. So go check her out. Don't miss what she's got going on because it's amazing. Thank you. Um, and just to let people know that although a lot of this, most of the services that I offer are services that people pay for, I do also think it's so important for people to have access to free usable information. So there are also one hour webinars available on the website that are totally free. Um, physical postpartum recovery from both vaginal and cesarean birth, prenatal nutrition, 
pregnancy Q&A, pumping and storing human milk, like all sorts of um, options on there for free one hour webinars too. Um, I don't think people should be limited to having, you know, having money to get information. I think it should be accessible to everyone. So um, there's some yes, free we. I'm so glad you said that because we we agree too. That's why we have our this podcast. We have yeah. our blogs so people can find all um, inf- a lot of information for free. But we also have our paid course, which is like the deluxe, more in depth. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have to go searching all of our podcasts and website for information. It's all just right there in a condensed version for you with lots more really cool stuff to do. So yes, I love that. I love that you offer that. I think maybe we should do a one hour webinar on our <laughs> on our website. I think <laughs> you're It'd inspiring us in all of the ways. Oh, good. I'm so glad. That's awesome. <laughs> yes. I I you know I haven't ever really done a webinar, but y'all are doing it. and like Gina does it too. Like maybe we need to do a webinar. We've done webinars. It's just it's it's just Facebook uh, Live or Zoom. Yeah, or... Facebook Lives. I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, Brittany, is there anything you would like to add that we didn't? I mean, I'm sure there's tons of stuff that you could add. Oh um, Do we have another ten hours? <laughs> right. Right. Um, no, I mean, I think just maybe in parting, I would just, you know, encourage people to remember that this is your birth experience and it is something that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And your provider may or may not remember your birth a week from now or a year from now, but you carry that experience with you, you know, every day moving forward. So, you know, do the research, get the education, get comfortable using your voice and, you know, really expect the same respect that you would in any other aspect of your life in birth. I feel feel like birth is one of those times where for some reason we may allow ourselves to be treated in a way that we wouldn't in other aspects of our lives and recognizing that it's a, it's a client and professional relationship. Like you're paying somebody to be there with you. So you have every right to, you know, to use your voice and speak up and make your wishes heard and and respected. So yeah, I think that's everything. Thank you so much, Julie. I, is there anything you want to say, Julie? Um, amen. And check <laughs> our shirt shop, thevbacklink.com slash bonfire, because there will be additions. <laughs> there will be additions for t-shirts. <laughs> and she's probably really not kidding because she loves No, I'm really not kidding. So. Well, we're creating and designing things. And so when we when we get inspired, let's do it. Right. <laughs> we should just do another t-shirt and it says close me say what <laughs> close me say what okay hold on hold on i gotta make it add it to my list i literally oh, got geez. a list going <laughs> oh, oh thank yes, you so much Seriously. thank you thank you for having me this has been super fun and it's been an honor to be here Oh, well, it's an honor to have you here. And like I said, I just adore you and love you. And I'm always scrolling your Instagram and can't wait to read that book. I can't wait. So um, I'll definitely be picking it up for a dollar. That's for sure. I'd, I'd pay more than a dollar. Too, so I will definitely get the deal. Commercial. <laughs> yeah, but there's no reason not to get it. One, right? <laughs> give you a dollar. But anyways, never mind. Just realize everything. All right. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you very much, guys. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to thevbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbacklink.com. 
Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.